Hare Krishna. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Radical Chinese Srimad Bhagavatam class. Sorry I was running a little late. Radha Madhava Jai Kunjabihane Gopijana Vallabhava Chaya Giri Vadabhari Chaya Giri Vadabhari Yasuranandana Vajajanana Suranandana Vajajanana Yasuranandana Vajajanana Jaya Jamuna Tira Vanachari Today we're reading <clears throat> from the first canto, chapter 3. We're beginning with text number 15. Yes, text 15. This chapter is entitled, Krishna is the Source of All Incarnations. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate so I'll read the Sanskrit here. Goes Rupam Sam Jagrahe Matsyam Chakshuso Dadhe Sam Palve Navyarupa Mahi. Mayam apad vaivashvatam manu. And the word for rupam is form, sa is he, jagre accepted, matsyam of a fish, chakshusha, chakshusha, udadi, water, sampalve, indonation, navi, on the boat, Aropa, keeping on, Mahi, the earth, Mayam, drowned in, Apat, protected, Vaivashvatam, Vaivashvata, Manu, Manum, Manu, the father of man. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami, Sri Prabhupada Ki Jai. When there was a complete Inundation after the period of the Chakshusa Manu, and the whole world was deep within water, the Lord accepted the form of a fish and protected by Vashvata Manu, keeping him up on a boat. Purport. According to Sri Pad Sridhar Swami, the original commentator on the Bhagavatam, there is not always a devastation after the change of every Manu. And yet this inundation 
after the period of Chakshu-Samanu took place in order to show some wonders to Satyavrata. But Srila Jiva Goswami has given definite proofs from authoritative scriptures like Vishnu Dharmottara, Markandeya Purana, and Harivamsa, etc., that there is always a devastation after the end of each and every Manu. Srila Vishwanath Chakravati has also supported Srila Jiva Goswami, and he, Sri Chakravati, has also quoted from Bhagavatamrita about this inundation after each Manu. Apart from this, the Lord, in order to show special favor to Satyavrata, a devotee of the Lord, in this particular period incarnated himself. Omegana Timarandasya Granjana Shalakai Chakshusan Miliatam Jena Tasmai Shri Gurube Namaha. This is a very interesting um, incarnation and pastime. We're reading about the devastation uh, or the inundation of the entire world. And even according to um, Western uh, flood experts, and um, for example, there was a special um, produced by uh, I want to say John Hancock, but I think it's it's um, his first name's different. But he's a um, <clears throat> He's a journalist in London, and he brought together a group of six PhDs um, to investigate the three great flood myths of the world. The, of course, the flooding of Dwarka, um, the flooding of um, the capital city of Manu, which we're going to talk about here today, and the flooding of Atlantis. You can see um, this film. It's an excellent production uh, documentary on um, some of the Vedic literature. And on this uh, special, um, which is entitled Lord Krishna's City Dwarka, the, um, a, a civilization of 12,000 years ago. So... Um, according to one of the flood experts from Oxford University, he has a particular computer system that analyzes flooding. And he was showing how um, a major part of the world was flooded, according to them, at the end of the last ice age, which took place approximately 14,000 years ago. So at that time, there was a major section of India which was covered by the um, ocean when um, there was this this uh, meltdown of the glaciers. And <clears throat> here we're also reading about this, um, this great Indonesian and the Lord appeared as the Matya avatar, as a great fish. And he assisted um, Manu, who is con- wrote a, a scripture called the Manu Samhita, but he is, in Vedic literature, described as the father of mankind. He is also the originator of yoga. Um, there's many Sanskrit literatures compiled by him and ancient artwork uh, of um, different yoga asans that were originated by Manu. Um, he's also mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita, um, in the beginning of the, in the fourth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, where um, the disciplic succession is described, um, which is very interesting um, because it, it, it um, can be traced back millions of years, according to the Vedic literature. Um, you know, many people would. Um, hear that and consider it just mythology. Um, but what's very interesting is that all of the Vedic literature 
is documented by different cosmological um, configurations and astronomy and astrology. So you can use those astrological calculations and confirm the dates of the events that are mentioned in the Vedas. So um, in this particular event or devastation this past time, um, a great ark was built. And even the um, Christian academicians, the um, collegiate you know, authorities um, of Christianity, even they um, have documented that this description of Noah's ark is actually Manu. Now, what's really interesting is um, just about three years ago, there was an amazing archaeological expedition that resulted in some um, unique uh, discoveries. Uh, One of them was two massive cities that were underneath the ocean. In fact, this flood expert, he was able to show how the land of India was covered during this time of Manu. And so a team of oceanographers and archaeologists, including this uh, journalist, uh, Mr. Hancock, they um, went out scuba diving, and it's um, the site of Dwarka off the southern coast of, or off the coast of Gujarat is um, a well-known site. Um, But this particular place, this was the capital city of Manu. And just to give you an idea of how large these, there are two cities side by side beneath the ocean. They're 125 miles off the northwest coast of India in the ocean. They discovered them. They had never been located before. And each one of these cities is as large as New York City. And the cities um, still have structures standing. Some of the buildings are as tall as 300 feet. And what's really unique, and they show you um, on this documentary um, with uh, oceanography, that the buildings were constructed with stones solid stones that were cut that were the size of, I would say, like a large van. So you can imagine a solid stone the size of a van. Um, So these these, um, scientists, these research scientists, they were saying that um, it's necessary to rewrite human history as we know it. Because looking at these structures, and they show you while they're underwater diving, they're um, cutting out the stonework, and they're showing you like major highways. And also what's really interesting is they dredge the city, and they bring up different artifacts, like they bring up deities, they bring up um, uh, dinnerware, They bring up um, gambling dice. And even according to their own system, this carbon dating system, which is accepted as accurate, they um, test these uh, archaeological finds, and they say that they date between 14,000 B.C. to to 30,000 B.C. So... What they're saying is that this city, these, these um, you know, beautifully designed sculptures and dinnerware, and you know, it, this whole, these whole, this huge, two huge cities with massive buildings that cannot be duplicated today. The stonework on the in this archaeological find is so massive that even today, with our cranes and all of our bulldozers and design work we couldn't make a structure we couldn't make structures to duplicate that 
just like the pyramids. So, um, but what they said was that this shows that human life, advanced human life existed as is recorded in the Vedic literature and these archaeological finds date back as long, as old as 35,000 years ago. You can watch this. This is all uh, leading uh, research scientists, archaeologists, journalists, all PhDs. It's um, the document. The documentary is on YouTube. It's entitled "Lord Krishna's City: A Civilization of Twelve Thousand Years Ago." So according to them, at the end of the last ice age, there was a great meltdown, and that indonated or flooded major parts of the world. And so, to um, according to the Vedic literature, Manu was the leader of this civilization in these cities. And he's not only the... Um, the father of mankind, but he's considered to be the founder and father of the yoga, of yoga. Also, um, Sanskrit language is traced to him. And anyway, according to the, um, to what we're reading here, and according to other, um, contemporary biographers of that time, um, you'll see information describing in detail this massive boat, this massive ark. And what was conducted and what's described here is that they were attempting to save the Vedic culture from being devastated at that time during this inundation. So, all different types of, of literature, scriptures, um, different people, uh, all different types of animals, different spices, different medicines. Everything was brought on the ship. And what they did was they traveled up to the mainland and then they transversed. They walked up into the um, foothills of the Himalayan mountains. So the flood, they took this massive ship from these cities, which were 125 miles off the northwest coast of India, and they traveled by ship to the mainland of India, and then they walked. They transversed up into the foothills of the Himalayas because there was still fear that the Indonesian would even flood the the coastal areas, which it did. Um one of the major um, fallacies that was used by the British against Indian literature, Indian scripture, was that the Saraswati River does not exist. According to the Vedic literature, the Saraswati River was such a massive river that it was 26 kilometers across, so approximately... 15 miles across. So I don't know if you guys have traveled over the Mississippi River recently, but let's just say the Mississippi at its widest point is maybe a mile and a half wide. So, huh? Maybe less. And where the the Saraswati River is described to be 15 miles wide. So the British were saying that there's no such river. But what they've done now with NASA um, satellite uh, surveys is they've now uncovered the riverbed of the Saraswati, which was covered, the Saraswati River was covered during this indonation, which they describe as the the uh, meltdown or, or the, the, the indignation created by the end of the last ice age. And you can see it from these outer space, from this outer space photography, from the satellite photography. Um, it's very detailed, just like we're using GPS equipment from satellites. Um, but if you go into a more advanced systems, like the type that are used for land surveying, 
you'll see um, you can actually measure the not only the lat- latitude and longitude, but also the curvature of the earth and all the different, um, you know, uh, changes in grades, uh, upgrades, downgrades of of the area right down to um, one one-thousandth of an inch. So with that equipment, they're doing um, satellite land surveying across the ocean, across the earth, and they're showing the Saraswati Riverbed exactly in the location that's described in the Vedic literature, and it's 26 kilometers wide. And you can see it even today, the riverbed. It's under the ocean. It's like a huge line dug out in the bottom of the ocean off the coast of India. So according to this um, investigation, you know, the, the same thing took place. There was a great indonation, and the Christians, Achaemenditians, the, the, the scholars of Christianity, the collegiate Achaemenditians of Christianity, they attribute Noah's Ark to Manu's Ark. They're saying that the actual history of Manu is the same as Noah's Ark. So they carried this in, and they went up into the Himalayan mountains to, to protect themselves from further flooding. And um, in this particular location, which is a very rem- remote location, um, they reestablished the Vedic culture of Aryanism, or the Aryan race. And even today, there are famous archaeological sites, very remote archaeological sites um, in this place. It's called the Indus River Valley of India. It's in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. It's a direct straight pattern from those cities off the coast of northwest India to the coast, to the inland. If you went straight with a ship, from those cities to the, to the coast, and you went straight into the foothills of the Himalayan mountains, there's an entire civilization there with all of the buildings and so, so many different finds that date back to that period. And what's really interesting, when you look at the oceanography of the cities underneath the ground, they, underneath the ocean, they have major highways, they have different like um, neighborhoods, different um, uh, suburbs. They and then the same thing when you go to the Indus River Valley um, archaeological site, you see the same type of structures, and you also see um, very advanced systems like um, water cooling systems, water purification systems, roadways, um, houses. large buildings. So it's not that we're reading mythology and nor is it, um, nor has it, is it not documented. Sometimes people will ask, what's your proof that Krishna consciousness is true? We have um, almost a hundred titles, 500 pages each. Prabhupada wrote more books than Shakespeare. And this literature can be documented with cosmology, with astronomy, astrology, with uh, the Sanskrit language. You can check word by word with a Sanskrit dictionary and see that this is not an interpretation or a concoction. But this is a direct translation of the original Vedic text. See, sometimes people, they want to rebuttal or they want to um, reject Krishna consciousness based on the authority of their education, their Western education. But what they're refusing to do is they're refusing to accept the existence of consciousness. They're refusing to accept the... um, the, the existence of a higher power. 
They say that human beings are the most advanced of life within the universe. But now Harvard is doing a research project because there's been over 3,000 reported alien abductions where people, you know, educated people, not crazy people, but, you know, upstanding people are carried out of their beds through their walls of their homes, up through their ceilings, brought into flying saucers. And um, there are just over 3,000 reported cases where there's basically two different types of aliens that interact with the human beings at this moment, at this time. One is a, a, a variety of, they're described to be white and wear white robes and they have um, white hair and they're able to, uh, they don't walk on the ground. They float through the air and they abduct people and they bring them and they're very nice and they usually give some type of like advanced knowledge to the people that are abducted. And these are major, like, uh, for example, you can see, if you look on YouTube, you'll see, like, leaders of our military. For example, there's one research doctor. Um, he was in charge of um, a type of photography. You guys have seen it, where they hold the um, lens of the camera open. So, like, you can see, like, in a city, like, throughout the entire night. So you see, like, all the car lights moving and everything in streaks, or they open it and show like the, move, the the blooming of a flower and all these different things. So what they were doing was they were re- doing a research project on rockets. They had just captured these um, German rockets at that time. So they were filming these rockets with this, um, I think it's called metric photography. And... Um, so they can see exactly how the rocket responds and how it moves. And what they found on every one of their films, that flying saucers would come from the sky and would circle around the rockets as they were moving through the sky. And there's many hundreds of films and thousands of cases And then the other group of aliens are, you know, demoniac. They're, they're, they're horrifying to see. And they bring people under their power and they're able to carry them through the walls of their buildings. And they bring them usually to some room or some flying saucer or somewhere. And they do these, these unmentionable, like, um, uh, uh, medical investigations, you know. And then people are forced back into their bodies. So Harvard's done a, is doing. A, people are taking this seriously. All of these things are described in the Vedic literature. All the different types of planets. It's basically, according to the Vedas, there are the demigods, which are um, there are two categories of them. There are pr- the primordial demigods. And there are the administrative demigods. And then below them, there are what are called the Upadevs. So the Upadevs are not demigods, but they're not human beings. They're superhumans. And they're described to have 75% of the powers that the demigods have. And then below them are the Gandharvas, the Pritas. Below them, are the, 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 the forefathers... Um, there's just descriptions of them having hundreds of thousands of planets. Many, many more than the demigods have. Because those planets are involved in the, the, the transmigration of the souls. And then you have the earthly planets. You have, you have um, the subterranean heavenly planets. You have the uh, lower hellish planets. All of it's described in detail. And the, um, for example, 
It's described in the Vedas that there are 8,400,000 species of life. So, of which 400,000 are human beings. So just for example, um, it takes 12 cantos. Some of these cantos are three volumes, um, um, make up one canto. So you can imagine about... um, anywhere from 500 to 1,500 pages. And that's for, um, you know, that's, um, um, and then you multiply that by the 12, by 12 cantos. So the entire Bhagavatam is only 18,000 verses. So even if one verse of the Bhagavatam described or gave you a little bit of information about one species of human race, of the human race, it would take hundreds and hundreds of volumes just to mention those different species. But so you can understand that that's not practical. But at the same time, we do have a lot of detailed information about many of them. So here we're reading about Manu, Chakshusha Manu, we're reading about how the Lord appeared as Matsyavatar, how um, he assisted Manu in saving the Vedic culture during the indonation, this massive indonation at the end of Manu's life, which is described to be the end of the last ice age. So I'm going to stop here. Ask if you have any questions. Well, you know, to judge something or to judge someone's not bad. Just like I'll give you an example, like when I um, joined. So it was at the Chicago Temple, and um, we had a very successful program going on there. The devotees were distributing about between ninety to a hundred thousand dollars worth of books every week. There was a hundred and twenty full-time Sankirtan devotees going out. So every week in those days, there was a semi the. The, the Bhaktivedanta Book Trust, the BBT, had its own semi with a 53-foot trailer. So every week, the semi would come to the Chicago Temple to bring more books. So as a new devotee, part of our service was to unload the book trailer and then into um, a storage room in the back of one of the apartment buildings that the devotees owned. So generally it was all the new men that would do this. And in this particular day, the oldest of all the new bhaktas, he was in charge of us. And so we were just taking the cases of books and we were loading them down uh, onto uh, dollies and then bringing them back to the back and loading them into the storeroom. So... On that day, um, His Holiness Satsarup Maharaj was visiting the Chicago Temple. So he went walking past us, chanting his rounds. And those days he was working on the Srila Prabhupada's Lila Amrita. That's in 1979. So he went past the truck once around the block, and then he came back again a second time. And when he came the third time, the leader of the devotees, the bhakta, oldest bhakta, he said to Maharaj, Hey you, do you understand the meaning of the Hare Krishna mantra? Please engage me in service. How can you keep walking past us when you, and watching us unload work here and unload these books? Why don't you put down your beads and help? So 
Maharaj put his beads on his neck and he got into the truck and he started unloading books with us. He didn't say a word to us. And so we were just talking to him and laughing and carrying the books and unloading the books. And then after about maybe 20 or 30 minutes, the temple president came out to check on us and he said, Maharaj, what are you doing? As soon as I heard Maharaj, I knew we were in trouble. Then the whole thing came out. Maharaj was working, you know, day and night, writing the Prabhupada Lilamrita, and he's taking a break just to chant his rounds, and we shouldn't be bothering him or insulting him. So my point is that, you see, Rupa Goswami gives this analysis, right, that there are Kanishtadikaris, there are Madhyamadikaris, there are Uttamadikaris. So, and we have different relationships with those different classes of devotees. But if we don't make that distinction, if we don't discriminate, then it's very easy to misunderstand and to, um, to you know, offend a Vaishnava or Krishna himself. So it's not that discrimination is bad if unless it's used in a bad way. If we discriminate to enslave people, if we discriminate to, to belittle people, if we discriminate, you know, out of false ego and pride, then of course, it's horrible. But to discriminate, to understand, like Prabhupada was asked this question, and Prabhupada, there was two times Prabhupada, Prabhupada once gave a lecture about Varnashram. So there was a university student, a, la- a lady, and she asked Prabhupada at the end of the class, are you trying to tell us that you're first class and we're fourth class sudras? And Prabhupada said, no. He said, I'm, I'm fifth class because I'm the servant of all of you. But another time Prabhupada was describing, you know, different distinctions um, between classes, between, you know, someone who's spiritual and someone who's materialistic. And so when he was asked about it, Prabhupada said, you put the food here, not here. So if you can't discriminate, you know, for example, that your food is supposed to go in your mouth instead of your ear, you're going to have a lot of problems. So distinction is good. Discrimination is good. The more we can understand one another, the more we can have faith, trust, and love in one another. But if we just want to homogenize everything, like the impersonalists do, the impersonalists say, it's all one. We're all one. Everything's one. Right? So according to the impersonalists, if everything's one, then if one person gets liberation, every conditioned soul should be liberated because everything's one. But that's not happening. So unless we can discriminate, this is how I advance in spiritual life, this is how I become conditioned in the material world, and make those distinctions, and also understand what kind of association is going to uplift us and awaken our Krishna consciousness and inspire us in spiritual life, or what kind of association is going to make us degraded, like animals filled with lust. Unless we can make those discriminations, then we have to take birth again. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm starting to get tired of this place. I'm starting to get tired of sitting in traffic jams and paying bills and growing old and getting surgeries and and having 
uh, the people that I love ripped away from me at the time of their death. It's not a very, you know, ideal situation. Um, Srila Bhakti Saranta Saraswati said it's no f- place fit for a gentleman. Prabhupada was asked by Madhuvisa Maharaj, he was asked by him about aliens. And Prabhupada said, yes, there are more advanced life forms within this universe than human beings. So there's every reason to believe that they may have developed space travel. Prabhupada said, but that does not mean they are carrying the message of God. That does not mean that they are acting according to the message of according to the desire of God. So, you know, we might have to think twice before we get on a flying saucer. Right? Like, now they're offering, uh, you can buy land on Mars, See, when the earth becomes too polluted, then everybody who's got, has bought their, um, you know, prime real estate on Mars, they'll have a shuttle, uh, rocket that, it, it only takes about how many years to get to Mars? Right? They sent that, that, that Sputnik up there, they sent that satellite, that little rover up there to film it or whatever. You know, it took years to get there. Prophet wrote a very interesting book called Easy Journey to Other Planets, which was actually addressing space travel. There was a lot of interest in that previously. I worked for NASA. They have warehouses that are like, I would say, the size of like maybe 30 or 40 city blocks. You can drive a semi in there and it looks like a toy. Massive amount of money. I carried a piece of equipment which was part of a, of a new space dome that NASA is building, they're going to send it up there. Um, I think they want to put it on on Mars. Made out of huge steel structures. They're going to put it in a flying saucer and shoot it up there. They, I carried part of it, and uh, they're bolted all together and set it all up on the, out on this yard in this uh, field in, uh, next to this NASA um, I don't know which one, what you want to call that manufacturing plant. And, um, you know, to see exactly <coughs> if it would go together the way they think and all of that. You know, because I guess you'd have to do that in a spacesuit. So they test everything before they send it up. You know? So I guess some people are thinking... You remember, I don't know if you guys have ever, if you've ever been to the Epcot Center, Walt Disney's, um, he's got a, a section on living in space. And he has, a, you know, they, they duplicated everything they would need to live in space, like the way they could recycle their water and the way they could grow plants with this hydroponics and all of this stuff. And Walt Disney, he had so much faith in that, that when he was dying, he asked them to freeze-dry his body. Did you know that? Walt Disney, you know him, right? The, right? So he's famous in America for, you know, Mickey Mouse and Disneyland and all these films that come out like uh, Lion King and uh, so many. So now um, they're trying to create this, this space 
um, center. They're going to put it on Mars. NASA is working on it right now. I was part of a team. And, um, but anyway, Walt Disney, so when he was dying, he said, you know, I know that this disease is killing me now, but um, when you come up with the cure for this disease, then you can give me the cure and bring me back to life. So he had them freeze-dry his body. They had his body inside of this canister, like freeze-dried coffee. See, but what happened was um, his family couldn't inherit his fortune because the court wasn't willing to legally pronounce him dead because he was freeze-dried. So one day, they don't know how it happened, but somebody showed up and pulled the plug on the freeze-dryer and he thawed out and they pronounced him dead. And then the court could uh, turn over the, the fortune to, the, to, the, to his uh, wife and children or whoever else had a, a finger in the pie. But people become so, you know, covered by this misconception that they're this body um, that even they'll go to that extent. You see? Or you may have even seen religious paintings of people like, for example, the return of Christ, right? Have you ever seen that book, Coming Back? Have you seen that book, Coming Back, about reincarnation? You've seen that, right? Coming Back. So when Christian people would argue against us, we'd hold the book up and say, even Jesus Christ is coming back. But the point I want to make is if you look at the paintings, they're saying that when people get liberated, they come out of their graves in their same material body. Have you seen those paintings? Yeah. And then you can go to heaven, you know, with your girlfriend and and your 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 dog Fido. Everybody will come back to life out of the grave. <laughs> zombies. Hey, you know, I went to NASA. You know, they have this big NASA museum. I brought my kids, my wife. You know, at the flying, they have all their their rocket ships and all of the space equipment and space outfits and you know all this stuff. So um, when you're leaving, they have this huge painting. It's a large painting, maybe six feet tall by ten feet wide. And on the painting, it shows Jesus Christ. And he has the Ten Commandments, you know, on the two stones of Moses. And he's handing the, the, the stones. What are those called? The slates. He's handing the slates of the, of the Ten Commandments to a couple of astronauts. And it says, Science. The religion of the new age. So Prabhupada, you know, he was very firm about presenting Krishna consciousness as a science. You, you'll see in his introductions, and also in his recorded lectures, and especially in his conversations with, with um, scientists, Prabhupada will always describe Krishna consciousness as a science, science, not a faith. So the more we can give scientific basis to what we say to people, the more they'll become convinced intellectually. And that's how you develop faith. Hey, you know, one more thing before you go. I, I just want you to know that, um, you know, Prabhupada was talking about um, intellectuals, oh, Krishna consciousness being a science. God, what was I going to say to you? And um,
he really wanted that, you know, scientific proof, a scientific presentation. Oh, this is what I was going to say. For us, <clears throat> it's not a matter of convincing these hardcore atheists or um, scientists or fanatical religionists, but our presentation should at least be so well, you know, um, structured. It should have such a solid foundation of information that at least they can't defeat it. They, we're not actually, I, I, I don't see us converting or convincing these hardcore atheistic scientists or, or religionists. Um, but what I do see is that if our presentation can stand up to them, the innocent people, like the students, they will say, well, at least, you know, they have a presentation that can't be t- torn apart. So that's why I think it's very important for us, you know, to look more carefully and give more scientific base, uh, a more scientific basis to our presentations so that um, that doesn't happen. Because if we do get torn up, then, you know, the students will say, well, the Hare Krishnas just got torn to pieces. Just like once I was, a, there was this big Mayavadi came, very famous, and there were devotees at his program, and he told everyone, why do you want to become like the Hare Krishnas? He said, they will make you servants. He said, but if you follow me, I will make you the master. And everybody was applauding. So Prabhupada, he was expert at dismantling these types of illusions. You see. So we have to work, you know, we have to spend enough time to give ourselves, you know, that type of foundation. So that if somebody comes out with something like that or somebody presents something to us, we can say, well, look at this. We have to be able to do that for the innocent public. Otherwise, Prabhupada said that Krishna consciousness or religion without a scientific basis, without a scientific process to realize the soul in God is simply sentimentalism. And science without an absolute truth is simply mental speculation. Just like when they asked Prabhupada about Darwin's theory, Prabhupada said, your forefathers may have been monkeys, but mine were not. Okay, I'll let you guys go. Have a great day. Thanks for popping in. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Hey, Krishna.